0: This is chapter 115 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we get ready for summer vacation with a couple of books perfect for the beach. Plus, if you've ever wondered when and how the summer reading trend started, we have the answer. Our first beach read this week features a beautiful beach setting. What happens there, though isn't so pretty we're talking murder abuse betrayal i spoke with author kate holahan about her hamptons thriller one little secret i know it's hard but tell us a little bit about your book without giving too much away
1: sure so one little secret is about uh three couples all neighbors who uh send their kids to camp for the summer and decide to all go in on a beach house in the Hamptons. and as they're there, uh, they uh, imbibe a bit too much and secrets start coming out. And in the morning, uh, one of the characters, I won't say who, is dead. And uh, it's kind of a, a locked room mystery in that someone in the house clearly did it. And you have to figure out the, the motives and, and who was likely and the, their lives are very intertwined in interesting ways. And on top of that, there is a, a detective, an outsider, who is there trying to solve this crime.
0: Now, Detective Gabby Watkins really feels like the most real and down-to-earth character in your story. And you actually acknowledge that she's your favorite. Why is that?
1: Well, first of all, part part of it was what went into her. I was uh, fortunate enough to interview a real female detective um, that lives, uh, that works for a Bloomfield. The force in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and she was uh, able to kind of take me through, you know, how she goes about her job. What are some of the things she thinks about? What are the kind of cases that get thrown her way as a female detective? And we just talked for hours, and then she uh, brought me around the police station. So by the end of it, I really had a good sense of um, how a female detective in a smaller town might approach uh, these kind of crimes. And, um, you know, what might be going through their head. And so I think that that's kind of why she's my favorite and feels the most real to me.
0: Might she pop up in a future book of yours?
1: Oh, I wish. We'll see how this one does, but maybe.
0: (laughs) So uh, there are a couple of, how should we say it, fake friendships, I guess, in this book?
1: Yes. Um, Well, you know, I was playing with a theme when I went into this book of... um, Kind of what I think happens a lot of times in, in suburbia is that you form communities that are based on, well, the kids are friends and you're trying to, everybody wants to be polite and likable, and, but that doesn't mean that the friendships get very deep. Um, and so I'm playing with that, where these people are all friends in that, you know, they go to the same baseball games and their kids and the same school events and they, they know each other, but they haven't really gotten below the surface. And so even though they think they're friends, when they get there and things start to come out, it becomes clear that some people really don't like each other all that much.
0: Am I taking a good guess if I say this is something you might have some experience with?
1: Well, actually, I'm very fortunate that I think um, after years of being in my town, I have I have a good group of, of deep friends, but I, I probably also have a good group of acquaintances who um, I don't actually know much about other than, you know, we enjoy talking to each other when we're sitting there waiting for the first grade play to start
0: (laughs) the story and some of the characters are a little bit ugly but boy is the setting out in the hamptons gorgeous especially that house that they end up renting for the weekend yes um thank you zillow
1: (laughs) I, I, i steal real houses all the time for my work i mean i merge them a lot of times i'm like oh i want that living room in that house but um Yes, I I do think that the house is gorgeous, and I, I this, as far as you know what happens being kind of dark. Well, it is a, a psychological thriller, but I also wanted to to kind of explore some of the the things that happen in marriages. You know, from uh, insecurities to uh, to domestic violence and and some of these other darker things that I think are often um, hidden in in polite communities.
0: So you know, this is a great book to read by the beach. It's set on a beach. What sort of books do you like to read when you're trying to get away from it all?
1: Oh, um, well, I do love uh, my genre. So I read a lot of psychological thrillers. I uh, like Wendy Walker and Rhea Frey and uh, Kate Moretti and um, Brad Parks. Um, you know, I really like all of those guys. And so um, I bring their books books with me. I I also, uh, for some escapism, like to read some uh, some magical realism occasionally, you know, really imagine the butterflies and uh, carrying away the soul of a person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I asked you before, you know, if we might see Detective Watkins pop up in a future book. Are you already thinking about what your next book might be about?
1: Right. So I have written my next book. Um, it does not involve a detective. It's a psychological thriller involving um uh, a home invasion, and then the, the husband uh, kind of outfits his entire house with all those nest cams and ring doorbells and all these things that we, we use to secure our, our castles. And uh, he becomes, because he has kind of PTSD from the attack, he becomes glued to the monitors and starts uh, interpreting information from these uh, cameras in a, in a way that makes him suspect those that care about him the most. And so that's where the drama comes there.
0: That sounds like it has a little bit of a touch of like rear window.
1: Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Um, only it's uh, more personal because it's not someone looking out at um, somebody at a crime that happened in someone else's house. This happened to him.
0: All right. Well, we've been talking with Kate Holohan. The new book is One Little Secret. Thank you so much for taking the time today and talking to us about it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having
0: me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Time for a quick word association game. If I say the name Mary Kay Andrews, what's the first thing that comes to mind? If you answered Beach Read, ding, 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 often referred to as the queen of summer reading, she's back with her 26th book this summer. I talked with her about Sunset Beach and the real-life cold case that inspired it.
2: The real-life um, cold case that inspired uh, one of the plots in Sunset Beach um, Took place in 1965. Um, 22-year-old Mary Shotwell Little was a newlywed. She'd only been married six weeks. She worked at a bank in downtown Atlanta, and she and a coworker went to a very popular Atlanta shopping center um, for dinner and some shopping. And um, it was Lenox. It's now called Lenox Square Mall. But it was it's in Buckhead, and it was, you know, the safest, most prosperous part of Atlanta. She and her friend went shopping, had dinner, and they walked out to the parking lot together. And Mary turned to her friend from work and said, I'll see you tomorrow. And then she vanished. The next day, when she didn't uh, show up at work, her boss got concerned, and he drove over to Lenox and... They uh, looked around the shopping center. They found her car, which they think had been moved, and uh, no sign of Mary, but they did find folded on the front passenger seat some of her clothing, her girdle, her bra, I think her stocking, maybe her dress. And there were blood droplets on the clothing. But um, that's the last solid clue the police ever had in her disappearance. Um, Over the years since 1965, um, they would they got all kinds of tips. Obviously, they would go out. The police would go out and drag lakes and dig up wells and jackhammer concrete floors and garages and went all over the the eastern part of the United States chasing leads, but never any solid, real clues about what happened with Mary Shotwell Little. I was a newspaper reporter for many years and. When I first started working in Atlanta, um, I'd heard about the case, and I got really intrigued with it. And um, in the late 80s, when I was a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I actually did a story about the case. I interviewed the lead detective um, on the Mary Shotwell Little case, and he told me, you know, every cop, every good cop has a case that haunts them. And Mary Shotwell Little was the case that he was obsessed with. He retired not long after I talked to him and died not long after that, and so I was talking about the case with a um, a retired Atlanta police detective who's helped me a lot with research for all my novels. Um, you know, I wrote mystery novels for the first few years of my um, fiction writing career, and my friend Mick and I were talking about it. Um, I was talking to him for research for Sunset Beach. We got on the subject of uh, Mary Shotwell Little, and he had worked the case in later years. And he said, you know, when that detective died, the official police file went missing. That just kind of intrigued me.
0: I had just read that this morning, that all the evidence in that case disappeared.
2: Yeah. Well, there were some, you know, the the FBI and later the Georgia Bureau of Investigation They did investigations, too. So I think their files files still exist. But the Atlanta police files, the bulk of it is missing. And so when my friend told me that, the little what-if switch was flipped in my head. And I thought, what if? What if I took that case, moved it to the setting of my book, which is St. Petersburg, Florida, and Sunset Beach, which is a real setting? a real place on the Gulf beaches uh, on the west coast of Florida. What if I use that and that case as inspiration for a plot in my book?
0: You mentioned that this is just one of the plots in your book. Why don't you tell people what the other plot is about? (laughs)
2: Well, the other plot, um, my protagonist, uh, her name is Drew Campbell, and she works as a cube rat, as she calls herself, for her father, her father is a very flamboyant personal injury lawyer. He's one of those billboard barristers with the billboards and TV ads and radio ads and, you know, ads on the sides of city buses. And so she's working in his office and she gets intrigued by a case that he's failed um, to be able to settle satisfactorily. And that's um, the case of um, Jasmine and her and Jasmine is a a housekeeper. She's a young African-American woman. She's a housekeeper at a resort hotel on Sunset Beach. She's a single mom and she lives with her mother. And Jasmine's body is found beaten and strangled in the laundry room of this resort hotel. And um, that case is not solved. And so when um, Jasmine's mother hires Drew's father to sue the hotel for uh, wrongful death and criminal negligence, the suit goes nowhere. And Drew just isn't satisfied with that. So she starts kicking at rocks and trying to figure out what happened and to get justice for Jasmine
0: and for her mom. So the setting of your story is pretty personal to you. Why don't you tell us about that part of it?
2: Yeah, it's kind of, this is Sunset Beach, which is a Valentine to my hometown. I grew, I was born and grew up in St. Pete, Florida, and grew up on those Gulf beaches. and. Um, I thought, if I'm going to set a book here, I'm going to make it personal and make it, um, I think, setting, setting for me is so important. I want to put my readers right in the world of the book. And to do that, I have to put myself in the world of the book. So um, I wrote about real places that are meaningful to me in St. Pete and the time frame of the missing, missing girl um, cold case. Is, is no coincidence. Um, my missing girl, Colleen uh, Hicks, disappears in 1972 in, from downtown St. Petersburg. And why 1972? Well, that's the year I graduated from high school and started dating my starter husband. And I think for uh, a lot of us, the se- our senior years of high school are so memorable. I, to this day, I can remember what I wore my senior year of high school. I can remember what Cast, You know, eight track takes we had plugged into the tape player and my friend's 68 fastback Mustang. Um, And so I thought, I'm going to I'll play with that. And so the old cold case uh, and those two plots are woven throughout the book. And so um, she disappears. Colleen Hicks disappears from Ma's Brothers, which was the big department store in downtown St. Pete. And I worked there when I was in college and bought my wedding gown there on layaway. Um, and there are other there are other old-time St. Pete spots, real spots that still exist. Ma's Brothers is gone, but the other places in the book um, still exist. And of course, Sunset Beach is a real place too.
0: So we actually have something in common. We're both journalists with... I guess you could call it true crime obsessions. Yeah. What draws you to those kinds of stories?
2: You know, I think I have crime in my DNA. (laughs) I was one of those kids growing up when everybody else I'm one of five. um, When everybody else was reading the Sunday funnies, I was reading the police log in my hometown paper. And I had an uncle who was a career cop. And every Sunday we'd gather at my grandmother's for dinner. And, I would listen to him talking about the cases that he was involved with. And I went to journalism school and um, got out of journalism school. And some of my first beats were the police beat, which was something I was intrigued with. And even when I was a baby reporter, um, I started my my first job was in Savannah. I worked a two to eleven shift. And you know what that's like. Um, Oh, yes. You file you, you file your story. I work 2 to elevens, um, and so I work Fridays and Saturday nights. So Saturday nights, after I filed my stories and met my deadlines, if if it was a slow night, I'd take myself into the library's morgue, which for those who don't know what a, a morgue is at a, at a newspaper, that's the library. And I'd read the old clip files about old unsolved murders that I'd heard people talk about. And, um, you know, later on when I moved to the Atlanta paper, even though I was a features writer, I was always trying to scam my way onto a good story like that.
0: It's so funny. Until you just mentioned it, I forgot that as a kid, I loved reading the crime blotter section as well. And I always looked forward to the Sunday paper. They always had a feature that was about either a cold case that hadn't been solved for Mm -hmm. such a long time or like one of the more scandalous New York City crime stories.
2: You know, the thing that I think that draws me to those stories is not the gory part. Um, I'm not interested in that, that, You know, that I find repulsive. I'm interested in the why and the how and the puzzle aspect of it. And I think that's what drew me to mystery writing in the early years of my career.
0: And I guess that's why, too, that why even though your books, they're not marketed as mysteries, but you always have a little bit of of mystery in them.
2: Yeah, I think think there's always an unanswered question that I'm trying to get at. And um, you know, they mar- my books are marketed as beach books, and I certainly hope they are. I'm proud to be called a, a summer read or a beach book. That's a happy thing for me. Um, I, I I like the idea of sort of setting myself aside, away from the rest of the pack. Um, there's there is some romance in my books, and there's but there's also you know some mystery, and so I kind of circled back to that with my with my more recent books with. Um, Two three years ago, my book was called Weekenders. had a um, had a old cold case and a, um, a new one. Um, and then last year's book, The High Tide Club, same thing.
0: You did mention how you're classified as beach read. You have the reigning title, The Queen of Summer Reading. So, what what do you look forward to reading this summer?
2: Oh gosh, I've got so many on my nightstand. I can't. I, to starting to pile up <laughs> i've gotten into reading um historic fiction so um i've got um a woman of no importance
0: oh that's a great one is, uh, isn't
2: it yeah yeah it's about virginia hall uh this is nonfiction. Uh, she was uh an american who desperately wanted to be a spy and so she got involved in espionage working for the brits and and went uh to france during world war ii and and helped run a, um, a network with the resistance. Um, what else have I got? I, oh, I, my friend, uh, Laura Lipman, The Lady in the Lake. Um, and I love Laura. She's so, she, she writes atmospheric books. And, of course, she's a, she's a failed journalist, too.
0: <laughs> I call myself
2: either a failed journalist or a, re, or a recovering journalist. But she used to work for the Baltimore Sun. So her book comes out, I think, in July. Um, I've just got a whole stack of them.
0: I love that. I, I think I'm going to go with recovering journalists when I move on to the next phase of my career. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've been talking with Mary-Kate Andrews. The latest book is Sunset Beach. Thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking about it. By now, I think there's little doubt that we love our beach reads around here. But I don't think anyone knows more about the genre than Donna Harrington-Luker. An English professor at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, and a self-professed book nerd, uh, who isn't, Donna really took a deep dive into the history of the summer read. We chatted about the result of all that research. It's her book, titled Books for Idle Hours, 19th Century Publishing and the Rise of Summer Reading. What led you to research its history? I'm pretty much a book nerd. Um,
3: I'm the kid who at 13 years old on summer vacation brought Moby Dick along. um, And none of those patterns changed as I got older and got um, into the profession. Uh, And I was coming back from a print culture conference in Halifax uh, one June. And I noticed in the airport bookstore one of those big, the ubiquitous um, recommendations for summer reads, the best summer reads with this big, glossy brochure. And for some reason, that just started me thinking about uh, my own summer reading practices and maybe how the industry had shaped them or how I had shaped them or other factors had shaped them. And so that just started me down this road. Uh, uh, I started looking at uh, trade publications from the period. I just I knew I wanted to go back into the 19th century and figure out where did this start uh, and how did it come to be and what factors were involved. Uh, And so that was my rabbit hole into which I descended.
0: So what is the first reference of a a summer or a bee trade?
3: You know, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit uneasy anytime saying the absolute first, Um, but what my research showed, um, if I went back into the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, you're going to get advertisements for summer reading, and you're going to get people talking a little bit about summer reading. But it's not going to be very often, uh, and it's not going to be very summery. An advertisement for summer reading might have, you know, a list of science books, um, uh, a story about summer reading. It was, by and large, in the 1830s and 1840s that is before the Civil War, it's framed as a masculine endeavor um, and it's framed as kind of good literature, the belles lettres. Uh, so um, Charles Lamb is a good summer read for the man who is on summer vacation because it's going to make him calm and um, he's going to be able to take that calmness back with him um, after summer vacation is done. Uh, so you do get some references, but my research uh, showed that they really start picking up after the Civil War in the 1870s. And it's that point where it really gets framed as a feminine indulgence. Uh, uh, So it changes. It changes over the course of the century.
0: And it's it's that's kind of almost where it stayed, because I think beach reads are synonymous with women's fiction.
3: Definitely today. Um, And it's interesting back in the 19th century that uh, uh, authors, prominent authors of the period. Uh, they they indeed believed that if they were writing fiction, they needed to be writing fiction for women readers, that it was women who had the money, women who had the time to be reading the fiction. Uh, and, you know, research in terms of libraries, some of the biggest libraries in New York, they show that there's really not that much difference in reading patterns between men and women in the period. Uh, but authors and publishers of the period, they're definitely setting that up. And you're absolutely right. It, I think it is still true today um, uh, maybe changing a little bit in this age of hashtag me too uh, I'm seeing that this year uh, in a way that I hadn't seen it before uh, but definitely the um, uh, uh, the number of, of women authors with large female fan bases uh, who have a book that appear book, books that appear every June uh, and they tend to be about women and women's relationships and, and and friendships that last a lifetime and family and the problems that women are facing uh, and so I I think in that way, they they, they kind of are similar. I mean, the problems are different, uh, but uh, definitely a feminine indulgence um, uh, would be a way I think that the publishing industry often has framed it.
0: Now, tell us a little bit about how the Industrial Revolution and the creation of, of leisure time really contributed to the popularity of summer reading?
3: In the 19th century, you see an increase in travel, tourism, and summer leisure. It's initially, it's kind of modeled on what people would have seen in Europe. Uh, And it was around places like the Catskills, Saratoga Springs, um, uh, the Hudson River, um, the Uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, So all of those um, start with kind of very elite vacation practices. But by the time you get to the period, especially after the Civil War, uh, for a variety of uh, economic and cultural reasons, you have kind of an increasing emphasis on the rise of a middle class, uh, young teachers, uh, people who are working in department stores, uh, people who are working for the federal government. Uh, And it's a new middle class and they adopt summer leisure as a sign of social distinction but they're not necessarily schooled in these practices. So one of the things that I found was that in terms of how do you perform summer leisure, what is it that you do, what is it that you wear, um, the print culture of the period just really kind of dovetails really nicely with that in kind of educating uh, a middle class. Um, the novels very often what I call the American summer novel. It, it, it very often, it takes place at a specific summer resort, and it's telling a story, and very often it's a marriage story. Uh, but it's also taking advantage of the various activities and sites that one would see in that specific locale. And very often those drive the plot. And so somebody reading it is getting a good story, but they're also understanding what are the sites to be seen? Do I want to go on the toboggan ride? Are we close enough to Mount McGregor? Could we go there um, in, um, uh, in a trolley? So um, uh, they're really serving um, uh, a number of purposes.
0: You know, you just touched on something that I never really thought about until you said it. Is this really a uniquely American genre?
3: I'm not certain about that. Um, uh, from the bulk of my research, um, there were definitely some of these summer novels that were also published in England. That is, they'd be published in the United States, then the same thing brought out by a, Br- uh, a British publisher. Uh, and, you know, there's signs that they were maybe popular enough, but not n- certainly not as much attention as, as over here. I don't know whether, if we looked in England, for example, um, whether there would be um, a similar set of practices. Um, the... The social climate, the cultural climate, um, the climate around vacationing and summer leisure uh, may have been very different there. Um, but I think that's one thing that I- I'm hoping that somebody picks up on uh, kind of after this. Uh, it might be one of the places that deserves to be researched more.
0: You know, we touched on it a little bit about in when we spoke about uh, what these books and these stories with women and their relationships and their friendships I guess the formula really hasn't changed that much since the 18th century.
3: Today seem very, very different because there's kind of there's an autonomy, um, there is an independence, there is um, you know the celebration of female friendship. That seems to me to be very different the way it's constructed today. It's still tied very specifically to women and women's lives, but back then there definitely it was it was a marriage plot, and uh, a number of women who might have read these, um, uh, you know, would have been interested in kind of the freedom and release that summer leisure brought. These were uh, summer leisure spaces had much more freedom for women. Uh, They could do very many of the things without uh, having uh, somebody watch them. Uh, They were able to take part in outdoor activities. Just a whole lot more freedom and release. Uh, And the women who would read these, I mean, it's a marriage plot, but it's kind of there are a lot of these freedoms, but then at the end, you do have this sense of that it ends in marriage the way a Shakespeare uh, comedy always ends in marriage, Um, and that when it does, there's kind of, there's a closure. So it's a period of release. And yet when you come back, there is this sense of order being restored. So it does seem to me that the ones in the 19th century, they're, they're, they're working differently. Um, they're st- even though they're kind of exploring women's experiences, I think they're working very differently.
0: It's almost like the, those books of the past, they're a reflection of what women were expected to do. Okay, you can have your fun. But when the yeah. summer's over. It's time yeah. to go back to being a being a wife, being a mother, being a caretaker. Um, And you never see that life.
3: Um, uh, It it always, the the kind of pattern for the American summer novel, the novel set at summer resorts, um, uh, the pattern was, you know, that that somebody would go to a resort, they would stay there for like an entire season, regardless of the fact of what social class they came from, uh, and then uh, everything would kind of wrap up in August and September, uh, and that would typically be the period in which if there had been... um, an, engage- an engagement would happen. Um you never really see them get married but they're engaged often by the end. I, you know some some authors challenge that formula. William Dean Howells does. Uh but by and large um very often that's the way many of these novels would work.
0: You know what's the one thing that comes to mind and it's not a novel. I think of the film Dirty Dancing. Okay. <laughs> Set at a summer resort in the Catskills, yeah. you know all that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah,
3: you know there was one novel. If I can go off, maybe a little bit here. Um, uh, many of these novels were incredibly ephemeral. They did not last long. They were, you know, one season and 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 that was it. But there was one of them. It's called One Summer by a novelist by the name of Blanche Willis Howard. And uh, it was published from the early 1870s. It was first published. Uh, It was incredibly popular. And it was republished, reissued just about every year between 1870 and 1900. And I'm I'm only stopping at 1900 because that was my convenient stopping point. Uh, It may indeed have gone even further. That was a phenomenal success. And it is this very Shakespearean, a young woman. uh, She is vacationing on the uh, main shoreline and uh, she has to she wants to go out one night it 's pouring rain she wants to meet some uh, she wants to buy a book that she saw in the drugstore window so one of these paperback novels she wants to go out and buy um, she literally bumps into a young man almost pokes his eye out with her umbrella he mistakes her for a servant um, and the rest of the book is basically bringing them together she wants nothing to do with him after this embarrassing misstatement um, and um, Uh, The rest of the book is bringing them together. And indeed, by the story's end, they're up in Bar Harbor and she finally admits her love for him. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's where the that's where the novel ends. Phenomenally popular in the period, um, uh, given the number of reissues. Uh, And popular among a variety of classes, Um, I found a copy in the Stanford University Library that has a book plate indicating a good possibility that it came from the Stanford estate itself. Uh, Another one in um, the Muncie, Indiana Public Library uh, that indicates their records are available digitally. And it indicates that, you know, young women who were working in grocery stores, the wife of insurance agents, um, they were checking it out in significant quantities as well. So it had real appeal.
0: I guess that's really what what a good beach read, summer read comes down to is is a like broad appeal for for any type of reader.
3: Well, you know, I, I've noticed this year they're talking about the it book? What is the it book for this summer? Uh, The book that has a lot of buzz. Um, And and that idea of buzz, I think, came into play um, in the 19th century as well. Um, uh, One of the uh, anecdotes that I talk about is uh, the novelist, Henry James. He he got a start, like many 19th century novelists, writing uh, travel literature. Uh, And he had done a travel series for The Nation. Uh, And he's on a ferry crossing Lake George from uh, Burlington to Lake George. And uh, he notices that um, they've got the beautiful landscape. Uh, And there are a large group of young women beautifully dressed from the hotel. um, And they each are carrying a copy of a Benjamin Disraeli novel that had just been put out that summer that had just been published in the US that summer. Um, And they were all holding their copies of it. Um, You know, so this idea of the book that everybody else is reading, um, that idea of word of mouth, um, that's going to figure in as well.
0: So, you know, sometimes I think the term beach read is perceived negatively. Can we settle the debate once and for all? Is it, <laughs> is it
3: good or is it bad? I don't make a distinction. I don't make a value judgment in terms of high culture versus low culture. Um, uh, and, and I think that's where that argument kind of gets hung up. Um, I think very often as well that um, novels written by women or novels written for a female audience are very often marginalized in terms of larger cultural conversations. Uh, and so, you know, um, in terms of the beach read itself, we're living in difficult times now. And I've been thinking about this actually um, a little bit, especially this week. And. If you go back, there was one line, a magazine called The Overland Monthly. It was a literary magazine on the West Coast out of San Francisco. And it had, um, you know, one of the summer reviews. And the writer uh, started off by saying that there was a particularly light crop of summer novels that year. Um, And he or she didn't probably he didn't sound real pleased with that. But then the writer went on to say that perhaps there was an especially that, that there was an especially difficult cholera outbreak that summer. Uh, and that these were books that would give the mind a rest. And I do find myself thinking about that. Um, Yes, maybe they're light, um, but the idea that this kind of stepping back from the real difficulties of 19th century life then and 21st century life now uh, may be really necessary um, to rest the mind, to make it uh, more apt to engage with other things um, uh, after the summer vacation, after the break.
0: So we've been talking with Donna Harrington-Luker. If you want to hear much more about the history of Summer Reads, pick up her book, Books for Idle Hours, 19th Century Publishing and the Rise of Summer Reading. All right, who's ready for vacation? I, for one, have my bags already packed and books too. Next time we chat with author Riley Sager, whose new thriller horror novel was inspired by Rosemary's Baby. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.